You may turn to 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 18. I'm not going to read the whole text in the beginning just for the sake of time. But we'll read it as we go. First Corinthians nine, one through eighteen. As we begin, I'll ask you, and this is a question maybe for sports fans in particular, what is that you can think of, what is the most lopsided trade in sports history? Can you think of any doozies? Um, Being a hockey guy, my mind immediately goes to Wayne Gretzky being traded from the Edmonton Oilers to the L.A. Kings. Anytime you trade the greatest player that ever lived, you're going to lose that trade. And they gave up draft picks and all that, but then hockey in California was born with Wayne Gretzky being traded there in 1988. If you're an NFL fan, a few names might come to mind. John Elway being traded to the Broncos. A lopsided trade that would bring them championships or Steve Young being traded for the 49ers for draft picks or when Green Bay traded a first-round pick for a kid named Brett Favre. And those are lopsided trades. Maybe the most lopsided trade in history comes from baseball when Boston Red Sox owner Harry Frazee traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees for $100,000. Ruth went to the Yankees and helped them become the premier franchise in baseball while the Red Sox were cursed forever. That was the trade. And as the story goes, Frizee, the owner, got a little bit of money to fund a play called No, No, Nanette. But that's what he got out of it. You could call that a lopsided trade. But in any trade, what you're doing is evaluating priorities and saying, is this cost worth it? Is it worth the sacrifice? We make these kind of evaluations daily. Is reading this book worth my time? Is this pie worth the calories? We evaluate trades. Is it worth the sacrifice? What are my priorities? What am I willing to give up? And that's the question that Paul asks of himself and asks of the Corinthians What is he willing to give up? What are they willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? What is Paul willing to give up? What is he uh, willing to offer up for the sake of the free offer of the gospel to all people? That's kind of what Paul is answering this morning. And he uses himself as an example of one who's willing to give up just about anything for the sake of the gospel. He is willing to give up his rights, his freedoms as an apostle. Because for Paul, the priority of the gospel supersedes the priority of personal rights. That's kind of my main point this morning. I think that's Paul's main point in this text. That the priority of the gospel supersedes the priority of personal rights. Whatever rights he may have as an apostle, those are not worth the priority of the gospel going out. That is his ultimate concern. And this is spoken in the context of 1 Corinthians, where if you're here with us last week, you remember in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, and he is trying to explain to them that there are certain things that are worth giving up for the sake of others, for the sake of their faith. So specifically, there's the conversation of food sacrificed to idols. And there were some in Corinth who said, we have the right, and we know that before God, we have the freedom to eat food sacrificed to idols in certain contexts. And Paul would say, yeah, that may be, 
But will your actions negatively impact the faith of others in the church who might not feel that same freedom and might feel like that's really sinful and hard for them? So Paul's going to ask those who feel freedom, those who think they have the freedom to eat food sacrificed to idols, he'll ask them to consider, are you willing to give up that freedom for the sake of your brother or sister, for the sake of their edification, for their faith? He gives the Corinthians counsel that while it's not necessarily wrong to eat food sacrificed to idols under certain circumstances, more important than that is whether or not it will cause your brother or sister to sin or feel they are sinning. And he'll ask them, are you willing to give up your rights, your freedoms, for your brother or sister if your rights and freedoms may negatively impact them? And from that discussion, Paul now transitions to how he is willing to give up his rights as an apostle. So he'll first establish that he is an apostle, then he'll establish his rights as an apostle, and then he'll talk about why he's willing to give up those rights. And it's all because the priority of the gospel supersedes the priority of personal rights. And as we go through this, the question for us that must drive us and can mean the back of your mind as we look through this is, what am I willing to give up? What rights... Am I willing to give up for the sake of the gospel in my own life? So as we get there, first let's look to verses 1 and 2. Here briefly, Paul affirms his apostolic status. First he's just going to make the case that he is an apostle, and at the very least he is to Corinth. Paul affirms his apostolic status, and because of that he's going to hold certain rights as an apostle. Verse 1, he says, Am I not free... Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So he's responding again to the Corinthians. They felt like they were free to eat food that was sacrificed to idols because they had knowledge that that food wasn't tainted in some way because idols aren't real and they knew theologically that they were free. And Paul says, am I not free? If you guys have freedom, don't I have freedom? I have the same freedom. After all, I am an apostle. I have the knowledge you have. So should I be able to exercise my rights freely as an apostle? What about me? So he's to turn the example to himself. I am an apostle after all. And what is the definition of an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Those who were apostles were those who had seen Jesus and known him and were commissioned by Jesus to go out with the gospel. So when we think of apostles, we of course think of the twelve disciples. They knew Jesus physically as he was and existed on earth and lived at the time. They knew him, they walked with him, and they were specifically commissioned by Jesus to go out with the gospel. You will read in Acts one twenty one that when Judas fell away, they needed to, to complete the twelve, recruit another apostle. And what was their condition? They had to have somebody who had walked with Jesus and known him. That was a requirement for apostleship. Paul is qualified because he too has seen Jesus and known him. He knew him in a different manner post-resurrection, as he was on the road to Damascus, Jesus personally appeared to Paul, called Paul to ministry, and commissioned him, making Paul an official apostle of the Lord. And if Paul was an apostle to anyone, 
it should be to the Corinthian church. If anybody else was going to doubt his calling as an apostle, it should not be the Corinthians. Because Paul had a special relationship with the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3.6, Paul says he planted the seeds of the gospel there in Corinth. And a few verses later, in chapter 3, verse 10, he says that he laid the foundation of gospel ministry in Corinth. Paul was in on the ground floor of the church plant there in Corinth. He was one of their original founders, laying the seed, laying the foundation of the gospel there. So if anybody had kind of interest, investment, apostleship in Corinth, it was Paul. At the risk of embarrassing him, we could say something of that is true for somebody like Danny Funk. One of our founding members as a church. He was part of laying the foundation here. And as were others that would come after, as Ken mentioned, Lawrence Nellen Fries and Ron and Shirley Heber, Terry and Shirley Lynch, Phrases and Friends and others who came and invested and built into the church. They have a, a special affection and an investment here that means something to them, a unique and special interest in what is happening here. And Paul would feel much the same way. He had invested in Corinth. He says, you're my workmanship. Not that he can take credit for it, but he was involved in building them up. They were living proof that he was an apostle. Paul says, you are my seal. The seal would be a very specific image, mark, that was worn on the ring of a king. He'd have this kind of special insignia that belonged to him, that was unique to him. And when affirming letters that went out from him, they would pour wax and he would imprint his seal on the letter on the envelope and you'd know by that seal that belonged to that king, it was authenticating. Oh, this is that king's seal, it's coming from him, it's verified. In the same way, the church of Corinth verified Paul's apostleship. You're proof. You're my letter. How do we know? How do I know I'm an apostle? You guys exist. God has been fruitful through me here in Corinth. You are proof of my apostolic ministry. So Paul affirms his apostolic status among them, and that will lead him to a long argument where he affirms his apostolic rights. As an apostle, he has rights that he's going to defend at length. He is going to make a really strong argument that he has rights to be funded and supported for his apostolic ministry. You may forgive me if I preach this section with extra vigor uh, and special interest, right? This is a part where, where we can defend that ministers should get paid. So if I get a little passionate, then there's special interest in this. And Paul affirms his apostolic rights, really specifically that he could be supported and funded by his gospel ministry. Verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? 
Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul is going to make his overall case that he, as an apostle, has rights to be supported by virtue of his gospel ministry. And he's going to make this case using a number of different lines of argument. First, he's just going to say, do we not have the right to eat and drink? The Corinthians were concerned about the right to eat idle food. Paul's going to say, do I not have the right just to make a living? Just basic eating and drinking, don't we have the right to that? And then he says, do we not have the right to believing wives? Notice he says, believing wife, you know, a sister in the Lord. Do we in ministry not have the right to take a wife? And some of the apostles did have wives. Paul points out that even the brothers of Jesus did. Matthew 13, 55 names James and Joseph and Simon and Judas as brothers of Jesus, and apparently they were married. Paul says they had wives, and even points to Cephas, to Peter, the chief apostle, the head of the apostles, if there is a head, it's Peter. And he apparently was married. And Paul says we have rights to be married. Now here's a question, why bring up marriage at all as a right? It seems to be that the right to marriage was tied to the right to finances in Paul's thinking. It's sandwiched right there in the context. And Paul's talking about his rights to receiving financial support. So it could be that Paul is saying, we not only have a right as apostles to be supported, but we have a right to be supported to the extent that we could support a family. That might be what Paul is saying. Alternatively, Paul might be saying, we have a right to be married and in marriage be supported by our wives. That they would actually be supported financially by a wife who had means to support them. I actually think that might be what Paul is saying. Because he basically says, he's talking about him and Barnabas were the ones who weren't married, and he closely associates not working with being married in the context of this. We can think of Jesus' own ministry supported by females. Luke 8, 1 through 3. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, 
Herod's household manager and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So there are females, women who supported the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. And it is likely, actually, that apostles who were married were supported financially by their wives. Paul says, are Barnabas and I the only ones who have no right to be married and who have to work for a living? The implication may be that other apostles have been supported by their wives. Then he makes a number of arguments why he, as an apostle, should be supported financially. First, he kind of makes an argument from nature and common sense. So just from what we observe in the world, and someone who's enlisted in the army, do they have to pay for their own weapons, their own provisions? No, they're supported by the army. How about those who work in a vineyard? Do they have no right to eat some of the fruit? No, they can eat some of the fruit. How about those who are shepherds? Do they have no right to drink some of the milk of the flock? No. We all know that those who work as shepherds can drink some of the milk. The answer is obvious just from reason. All those who work should be able to benefit some from their work. And we, I think, should apply this today. We, we know this to be true. Those who work at Chick-fil-A have the right every once in a while to have a chicken sandwich, Right? You can't smell that all day and then not have one. That's not right. That's not just. We're those who work at a country club. Like, if you work and are employed at a country club, you should get a round of golf in every once in a while, right? That should be part of the package. Those who made Thanksgiving dinner, like, you have the right to taste test first to see if it's worthy of serving. You get to eat of your own labor. That's the case that Paul's making. We just know this to be true from general just living. But then he's going to make the argument from Scripture, a whole go specifically to the law, and a weird place, a place we wouldn't think of, Deuteronomy 25.4, which says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. This may be a dig at ministers. I don't know. But the, the act of threshing is carried out by ox or other animals like sheep, and you'd have a, a flat, hard surface where sheaves of grain would be thrown down, and then ox or animals would be led in circles around it, and as they stomped on it, the, the edible part of the grain would be separated from the stalk through that threshing. And the law was, don't put a muzzle on the ox so that as they're walking around in circles, they can't eat. As they're doing their work, take the muzzle off, let them eat of the grain that they're threshing. And we might say, well, that's a really obscure law that doesn't apply to us, but there's a universal principle behind that, which is don't be greedy. Be generous and let those who work be supported, be fed off their work. This doesn't just apply to animals. In fact, Martin Luther commented on this. He said, we know this isn't written for oxen because oxen can't read. Right? Inviolable logic. Yeah. It's written for humans. There is a principle at work here that God has laid down a good principle for employers. You who have staff underneath you, are you letting them eat? Are you being generous? Are you letting them make a living? Are you supporting those who labor? 
And then Paul's, Paul applies it to ministers. And particularly, now here's another line of reasoning, Paul says, particularly because ministers are doing spiritual work. And isn't that more important than physical stuff? We talk about lopsided trades. Isn't what they do worth the material benefit they would receive? Paul says in verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? We, as ministers of the gospel, as apostolic ministers, Paul says, we are reaping spiritual reward. We are investing in spiritual things. Isn't what will last in eternity, the spiritual stuff that will live on forever, that spiritual investment building you up in the faith of Christ, that you may have eternal life, isn't that worth giving up what will eventually be destroyed by rust and moths? So we do this exercise with our kids and did this the other night as we were reading a little bit of scripture. What do we take into heaven with us? Do we take our money? No. Do we take our food? No. Do we take our clothes? No. Do we take our house? No. We don't take any of those things with us. But there's spiritual stuff that lasts forever. Job 121 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. I came in with nothing, and leaving with nothing. Did you come into the world with clothes on? Nope. When you were born, did you have a bank account with you? Nope. You had nothing, and that's how you'll leave. So, all this stuff that's going to fade away, all your finances, your money, your wealth, all that, is that not worth trading for that which will be eternal? And this is why I really love having Ken Allen here in Missionaries, because I want to think about when we receive calls from missionaries, we receive letters in the mail, opportunities to invest, we ought to be excited about that because what that is is an opportunity to invest in spiritual eternal things. Like, we should be conflicted because we want to give so much. I mean, there's only so much that we can give. And we ought to be praying to the Lord, Lord, give me more that I may give more. Like, that should excite us every time we have an opportunity to give to those who are doing that work of the gospel. That is an opportunity for you to invest in eternity. And why would you not trade stuff that's going to fade away for stuff that is eternal? And if I might be crass just for a moment, we're in the middle of a fundraising campaign. That should excite us. Because we have the opportunity to invest in a basement that itself will fade away, but in it, people will be equipped with the gospel, and we have the opportunity to invest in a church plant that will go out and bring people to Jesus. We ought to be excited about the opportunity to give to that. You might say, I can't afford it. And I would just ask gently, can you afford not to? Not necessarily just to give to this, but to give in general to things that are eternal. Isn't the spiritual more important than the physical? The earthly, the material of this world. That's part of Paul's argument. Then he'll make the argument from just religious practice, what we see in the temple. Those who serve in the temple, don't they get to eat of the sacrifices? 
Deuteronomy 18.1 says the Levites would not be given land, but they shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. So Levites, that was the priestly tribe, they wouldn't be given land. They were given, rather, food from the temple. So those who served in the temple, probably both Jews and pagans, and the pagan ministers and priests as well, they would eat of the food that was sacrificed there. So Paul's making a, an argument just from religious practice. And then finally, his coup de grace in his arguments, the, the final, like this makes the case, this closes uh, the deal. Why should apostolic ministers and ministers of the gospel be supported? Because Jesus said so. He quotes Jesus' own teaching, Luke 10.7, the laborer deserves his wages. Jesus taught that as his disciples were to go out and as they went into homes and they were fed and supported by people, he said, accept it because the laborer deserves his wages. Jesus himself gave ministers the right to be supported for their work. So Paul will say in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And that word for honor is financial support. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This is my life verse, right? Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the labor deserves his wages. And Paul argues that as an apostle, he should be financially supported. He argues from just natural order, from wisdom, from common sense, from the Old Testament, from the priority of spiritual over earthly, from the example of the temple, and from Jesus himself, Paul's made an ironclad case that he has rights to be supported by Corinth, and then he rejects those rights. And that's the fascinating part. Nobody could argue with Paul that he does not have the right to be supported. He has made his case well, and then he says, and I give it up. And what is important for us to understand is why. Why would Paul reject his rights? And that's what he does in verses 15 through 18. Paul rejects his apostolic rights. He rejects his apostolic rights. Verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Oh, I'm not writing this to get you to pay me. That's not the point. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So Paul's made his case that he should be supported, and then he says, but I reject that right. He actually first says this in verse 12. Why does he reject it? Verse 12, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That's why he doesn't make use of this right. He doesn't want to put any obstacle in the way of the gospel. It's a little bit harder to pick up in the English translation, but in the, in the Greek it's very clear. Paul's talking in extreme languages here. He, he's talking in polarities. He basically says, we endure all things, we endure everything, so as not to put any obstacle. 
So it's almost saying Paul will go to any extreme length so that he doesn't put any hint of an obstacle before the gospel of Jesus Christ going out. He'll endure whatever hardship may come by not being supported because his priority is the preaching and dispersal of the gospel. So here's the question. Why would Paul's receiving of money from Corinth be an obstacle to the gospel? Why would it be Paul's concern that if he received money from them, that might be in some way an obstacle to the gospel going out? Earlier in this series, we talked about the professional rhetoricians that were around in that time. They were people who were professionals at speaking. And people would pay them to speak on any topic, and that's what they would do. And by their rhetorical flourish, they would uh, wow people and awe people, and they would speak at parties or events or whatever it was. But, but they were paid speakers. And for them... As paid speakers, the point was the speaking, not necessarily the content itself. They weren't speaking by conviction because they believed what they were saying. They were paid to speak on a topic, and so they did. And Paul's heart is, I don't want to be associated with that. I don't want people to think that I'm being paid to do this, and that's my motivation, and it doesn't really matter to me what I'm saying, whether I believe it or not. Paul's saying, no, this is of eternal importance. I believe this gospel. It is my conviction. I don't want to be associated with those who will just speak on anything and be paid to do so. So he refuses his right to payment. Also, in that world, there was kind of a system of friendship and patronage where wealthy and powerful people would basically buy friends for themselves. And that was kind of an expected part of the culture. If you're a wealthy person, powerful person, you might give a gift to somebody and say, I just want you to be my friend, be my associate. We can partner together. And there's the expectation that that gift or that kindness would be returned in some way. So one historical commentator says, the offer of a gift constituted an offer of friendship. While in theory it was voluntary and disinterested, it was intended to place the recipient under an obligation to repay. Acceptance was conditional, and the recipient must respond with a counter-gift or service. Immediately or at some time later, and numerous and popular conventions govern the behavior of both benefactor and recipient. In other words, it's kind of like the Godfather. Godfather does a favor for you. You can expect that sometime that debt will come and the bill will be due. Well, Paul wants nothing to do with any of that or being in the, having the appearance of being in bought or in anyone's pocket. He wants to be like Pinocchio, free without any strings on me. That's Paul's philosophy. So he says in verse 15, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Not that Paul does boast, but here would be the ground. He does not receive pay from them. Which does cause me to wonder, what would we be willing to give up for the gospel? Paul's willing to give up a living which was his right, but he's willing to give up his rights for the sake of the gospel going out. What would we, as a church, be willing to give up that the gospel may go out more freely from us? Would we give up our preferences, our 
musical preferences, our style preferences, our sermon length preferences, our parking spots. This is an honest question. And I actually would love to hear answers from you. Is there anything we do as a church that hinders in any way the gospel from going out? Because that has to be the priority. We don't give up core things, doctrine, beliefs, faith, love, you know, those things that we cannot give up. But are there certain things that we could change that might be obstacles to the priority of the gospel? And then you might say, well, Aaron, how about you? After all, this passage is about a minister giving up his rights of financial support for the sake of the gospel. Would you be willing to give up your paycheck for that? And for any pastor, the answer must be yes or they ought not be a pastor. That if we, as CBC, determined that the gospel would go out more freely from us and that we would be more effective in gospel ministry if we did not financially support our pastors, if we came to that determination, then that is what we must do. The ultimate point is whether or not we support pastors. The ultimate point is what gets the gospel out most freely. If we think having a paid pastor is the best way to do that, then we do that. If we think having an unpaid, bivocational pastor is the best way to do that, then we do that. The priority is the gospel, and it can't be anything else. I know when we had a search committee that ultimately called me here, one of the questions, and I'm really glad it was brought up, but I don't know how seriously it was deliberated, but one of the questions I know was brought up was, do we need a full-time vocational pastor? That's a question that has to be asked. It's a question that should be asked of everything we do as a church. Is this helping us with the priority of the gospel, or is it getting in the way? Do we cherish the good news that the Son of God was born a man in a broken world to save sinful people? That salvation and forgiveness and life can be found in him because he died on the cross for sinners. Do we cherish that? And is that our priority so that we're willing to give up whatever needs to be given up for that? Paul's willing to give it up because he doesn't preach for pay, he preaches out of necessity. He says in verse 16 through 17, I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. His point in all of that being, I don't do this for a reward. And in fact, if I did it out of my own choice, then maybe I would get a reward. But I'm not about a reward, I'm about stewardship. It's a stewardship that's been given to me. I have been called involuntarily. It wasn't my choice, it wasn't my design. God knocked me down on the road to Damascus, and I didn't have a choice from there. Like prophets that were called before him, Moses, Jonah, Jeremiah, they didn't have a choice. That wasn't their goal in life to be prophets. It wasn't Paul's goal in life to be an apostle. It was something that was put upon him. So he's saying, I can't take credit for it. 
Like, this wasn't a choice, this isn't something I aspired to, this wasn't my own goodwill, this is just God saying you must. There's no choice here. That's what Paul's saying, I was called to this out of necessity, out of duty. Abraham Heschel said that prophet does not volunteer for his mission, it is forced upon him. He is seduced, he is overwhelmed, there is no choice. And I was talking to somebody recently about this, actually, as a non-Christian person, just curious about gospel ministry, like, what do you do as a pastor, how'd that happen, like, just how'd that happen? So I was talking about my own calling, and it has occurred to me and has occurred to me many times that my deliberation for going into pastoral ministry wasn't like, I really want to be a pastor. It was, if I don't do this, I'm, I think God might strike me down. And that's very real for me. Like, it was obligation. It was duty. I felt like I would be disobedient to the Lord if I didn't pursue ministry. That was the call that was placed upon me. I'm not saying I have the same level of call of Paul or any other prophet. I'm just saying that's what happened in my own experience. It was a matter of obedience or disobedience for me. God has called me. I think I, think I have to pursue this, and we'll see if the church responds in favor. My question for you, as you think through this, is what has God obligated you to? Not all of you will receive calls to ministry like I have in pastors. Not all of you will be called to missions like Ken Allen is. But all of us are called and are obligated to something. And it honestly makes no sense to me where Christians proclaim to be Christians and then give such a small portion of their life to him. I do wonder, where is your sense of obligation or duty? Has not the Lord called you to something? Not that you have to be full-time in the church, but do you not feel some sense of obligation as a Christian to serve him in some way and give all of your life to him, no matter what that might be? So I'm very confused, very honestly, by Christians who seem very content with just attending church every once in a while, and then nothing of the rest of their life seems to be shaped by the will of God or Christ. Where is that sense of obligation or duty? Now, I know I'm a a duty-oriented person. I'm an obligation-oriented person, so I resonate with this. But there ought to be something in you that says, I have to respond if you believe God is real. You cannot believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, eternal God who has called you to live with Him forever and then just say, I'll give Him a little bit of time once a week. We ought to be willing to give up everything to follow Him wherever He calls us to. And it's going to look different for all of us. But there's always a call and a response. And you say, what is the reward? And Paul says, verse 18, the reward is to minister. That's my reward. I get to preach the gospel. Charles Spurgeon said to his pastoral students at his college, if God calls you to be a minister, don't stoop to becoming a king. All of us are called to be ministers in some way. All of us are called in some way to present the gospel to our world and to live for Jesus Christ. There is no better calling that is its own reward. So respond to that. I don't know what kind of call you may feel. 
what obligation you may feel from the Lord, whether that's to give finances, give your lives, be baptized, come to faith in Jesus in the first place. Maybe you're feeling that call to accept the Lord as Savior. Whatever that call is, respond to it. It will be the best choice you ever make. Why? Because the priority of the gospel supersedes the priority of personal rights. You should be willing to lay down everything for that call. That's my cue. Would you pray with me? Our Father and God, we thank you for the privilege to serve you. And Lord, we know from your law that you are not a stingy giver. You do not muzzle your oxen. But you reward all who respond to your call, Lord. So help us, uh, free us of our insistence on our own priorities, our own rights and freedoms, Lord. Help us to lay those down for the sake of doing whatever it is that will be most obedient to your calling in our life and that will be most effective for the gospel. Lord, we know you'll be good in that even if our lives seem to be at first worse because of the responding to that call, Lord, you know, ultimately you'll reward that. For you are good. We love you, Lord. We thank you. Amen.